0: Welcome to the Pacific Spine and Pain Society podcast for residents, fellows, and new attendings. A casual conversation like the ones had after a presentation in the Floro Suite or in the clinic designed to give you insight about interventional spine, pain medicine, neuromodulation, regenerative medicine, and minimally invasive spine techniques. And now, here's your host, Dr. Daniel Orlovich.
1: So, Sandy, tell us a little bit, how did you get involved in treating cancer pain.
0: All right. So let's see. I graduated fellowship back in 2016 and had the privilege of training under several fantastic mentors at Johns Hopkins, one of them being Michael Erdick, who is very interested in cancer pain. And that was kind of my first exposure to it. Prior to that experience, I didn't really understand what kind of options we had for cancer pain patients. But when I started treating them at Hopkins alongside Michael Erdick, I really got a sense of kind of the greater purpose role that you can play in kind of helping someone with cancer pain. And I really loved a lot of different aspects of it. So one was I felt like we were really doing the patient a great service by being able to provide kind of a pain-free or less painful cancer experience and for a lot of my patients it was an end-of-life experience as well and a lot of patients towards the end of their life don't like being drugged up and you know feeling all the sedative effects of the high-dose opioids that a lot of them end up taking and so interventions for cancer pain really kind of struck a chord with me as something that was an important way of helping these patients kind of have a quality of life at the end of their life. And seeing kind of the results with the celiac plexus blocks and the superior hypogastric plexus blocks and the intrathecal pumps, I really became a believer that, you know, this maybe was my purpose in life to kind of help patients at the end for a lot of them kind of transition from their life to death and do it in a peaceful way where they're able to say their goodbyes. And do so in kind of the way they imagined rather than feeling drugged up from the opioids. So that was kind of the first thing I noticed as a fellow. And then the more I've been practicing pain medicine, I've continued to kind of learn and explore new therapies that are available for cancer. And I've talked to Amit Galati over in New York a couple times. Because what I've found with cancer patients is that no two cancer patients are the same. And for the most part, I deal with solid tumor cancers and all solid tumor cancers are different just by nature of the cancer. So it's always a puzzle. There's always a lot of moving pieces in terms of are they anticoagulated? You know, how can we access, you know, whatever we're trying to access without kind of getting into the tumor itself and really like the cerebral aspect of it in addition to kind of the, I don't know, person aspect of it that just makes it kind of a a perfect field for me. So at this point in my career, I would say about 40% of my practice is cancer pain.
1: And then how did that work coming out of fellowship? You had an interest in it at Hopkins there, and then how does it work kind of Did you take additional patients? Did you take electives? Did you work closely with certain services? How did you build up to that time where 40% is doing cancer pain?
0: Yeah. So when I started at OHSU, I think the first step was, is that I let everyone know that I was interested in cancer pain. And that just, you know, I wasn't expecting to make this 30 or 40% of my practice. It's just, I said, you know, to my colleagues, this is something that's an area of interest of mine. And so you know, if everyone's okay with it, I'm going to start kind of delving into seeing more and more of these patients and kind of collaborating with other services. So oncologists, palliative care doctors in terms of, you know, increasing our referrals from those services. And what ended up happening is kind of, you know, once I started saying that this is something I wanted to do, then it just kind of built naturally from there. One of the first things I did is I met with some of the palliative care providers at OHSU. And what we ended up doing is building a multidisciplinary group that meets three times a month. And we discuss difficult cases in that group. And that group includes neurosurgeons, oncologists, palliative care doctors, physical therapists, massage therapists that specialize in oncological patients, we have some acupuncturists who are involved. So really kind of collaboration from a lot of different disciplines. And we discuss those difficult cases and kind of, you know, everyone tries to pitch in in terms of what can we do. And in our hospital, the way it's set up is our palliative care colleagues really do more of the medication management side. And they consult us or the oncologists consult us to see if there's any interventions That could be indicated. So we've done all different kinds of interventions, including, you know, your standard neurolysis, your visceral pain related to cancer. We've done intrathecal pumps. And then more recently, as the peripheral nerve stimulators have gained more traction, I started doing some peripheral nerve cases for cancer-related pain as well. For example, I had a patient probably about a year ago at this point who had a lung cancer that was infiltrating up into his brachial plexus. And he had horrible neuropathic pain in his arm on that side. And what we were able to do is basically implant a peripheral nerve stimulator proximal to where the tumor was invading. And he had fantastic pain relief. The only thing he was taking, because he was a a stoic dude. The only thing he was taking at that time was Lyrica and he really didn't like it because he felt like, you know, it was just, I don't know, making him groggy. And he was a farmer and kind of wanted to keep, you know, keep doing his day to day and, you know, not be so foggy from the Lyrica. So put in the peripheral nerve stimulator, and then he was able to wean off his Lyrica completely. And he passed with just pain relief from his peripheral nerve stimulator. So, I mean, it's just cases like that that you just feel, they're just feel-good cases that you were able to give someone kind of a good ending, and I really like that.
1: Yeah, and tell us a little bit more about, obviously, there's multidisciplinary teams. You said the oncologists, the neurosurgeons, physical therapy, oncology. What are their expectations? And then also, piggyback on the question, what are the expectations of the patients? Like you said, they don't want to feel groggy. What are some kind of things you hear from the teams as well as the patients?
0: Yeah. So one of the cool things about OHSU is that we have a lot of different disciplines available to our patients. And a lot of that is because um, insurance coverage for these disciplines is actually quite good out here in Oregon. So a lot of patients do have acupuncture benefits. Some of them have massage benefits. You know, pain psychology, I would say, is pretty standardly covered with most insurance plans. And so, you know, our patients, not just our cancer patients, but all of our patients have access to all of these modalities of care. And so kind of working as a team to, you know, really provide, you know, a treatment plan that involves a lot of different modalities. I think a lot of patients really like that, particularly because I think in the past, you know, I think the the stigma was, is, okay, I have cancer you know, I'm just going to end up on high-dose opioids. And I think the better that we get at kind of forming these multidisciplinary teams and thinking outside the box that, you know, maybe there is going to be a component of opioid therapy, but that doesn't have to be the only thing. And, you know, if the patients want to be lucid and kind of, you know, have time to spend with their families, then, you know, we have a lot of other tools in our toolbox that we're able to offer them. And I think patients really embrace that and feel like they're getting good care. And then in terms of what our multidisciplinary providers expect of us, I mean, I think what we've been really good at is kind of defining roles within our hospital. So, you know, our palliative care doctors, you know, they do a lot of the symptom management with medications. So things like nausea, for example, from chemotherapy you know, our palliative care doctors would be the ones who would kind of help with kind of medication management of that nausea. But then in addition to that, you know, if they brought up that patient in the multidisciplinary conference, one of our acupuncturists might chime in, there's also an acupuncture spot in the wrist that's, you know, well known to help with nausea from cancer. And so, you know, it's not just medications, we don't kind of limit our thinking to what medications are an option. We understand that that definitely plays a role, particularly with severe symptoms, but we try to offer patients a lot of different options that they can explore and kind of tailor to what their goals are in terms of cancer care and then potentially end-of-life care as well.
1: Nice. So it sounds very personalized, and you mentioned lots of tools in the, you know, the box in terms of treatment And you mentioned a handful of procedures. Are there any common procedures for the listeners out there that you commonly use?
0: Yeah, I would say kind of the most common procedures that I do are the neurolytic blocks. So I get a lot of referrals, you know, unfortunately for patients who have pancreatic cancer, gallbladder cancer, some kind of, you know, pelvic cancer, whether it's uterine, ovarian. I've also seen kind of an uptick of sarcomas. I feel like recently. And so, if it's a visceral cancer, I would say, you know, the neurolytic blocks we've had good success with. And, you know, I find those to be a very satisfying procedure in terms of pain relief for patients because a lot of patients come in basically unable to even lay on their bellies to be able to tolerate the procedure. And then they leave and they're like, wow, I feel so good. I mean, I remember a couple years ago. We had a patient who had a successful neurolytic block, and she was on all of these opioids prior to the block. She was on long-acting opioids, short-acting opioids. She was on everything. And she felt so good after the block that she completely forgot to take her opioids and forgot that she had to wean, basically, to avoid withdrawal. So she called, you know, I think a day or a day, you know, half later, and she was like, I feel horrible And we talked to her and we realized she was in withdrawal because she felt so good that she'd forgotten to take her opioids because she didn't have that natural kind of reminder of, oh, I'm in pain. So, you know, I wouldn't say it works on everyone. And it's certainly not a home run. And as you know, you know, the further the cancer has spread outside of the primary viscera that was affected, the, the more the failure rate goes up. But I would say generally for, you know, localized tumor, it's been a very rewarding procedure. And the way we do it in our clinic is a two-stage procedure. So we always do the block with just local anesthetic first, and then we wait about 10, 15 minutes, and then we let the patient kind of assess what kind of pain relief are they feeling with that block before we proceed on to the neurolysis And what I always tell my patients is, you know, the amount of pain relief you receive from the block is the most amount of pain relief you can expect from the neurolysis. That way they have kind of reasonable expectations of what to expect from the neurolysis. And, you know, it's not always 100% pain relief, and I'd say most of the time it's not. But for a lot of these patients, even if it's 50% pain relief, you know, that's meaningful for them to the point where they're able to titrate down on their Opioids and not have those kind of side effects of constipation, grogginess, you know, nausea that comes along with the chronic opioid therapy.
1: And then you mentioned neurolysis. What kind of pearls can you share with us about, you know, neurolysis for cancer pain?
0: Yeah, sure. So I'm a big believer that neurolysis should be reserved for cancer pain. It's a common procedure that we do at OHSU, but at the same time, I think it's a procedure that warrants respect. And that's because we're injecting basically 100% alcohol into a body cavity with the intent of destroying nerves that are carrying signals. And so because it's a liquid, and can spread to a lot of, you know, unintended areas. I am a firm believer, and I teach my fellows this, that, you know, this is a procedure that I think should be reserved for either end of life or cancer-related pain with the spread because we're working with, you know, a liquid substance, the 100% alcohol. I make sure to teach the fellows good technique in terms of looking at their needles from many different angles to make sure that the needle tip is exactly where you think it is. We generally approach in an oblique view and then kind of confirm our needle position in both AP and lateral, you know, after we think we're in the correct spot. And then with the contrast spread, I mean, we've seen so many different interesting contrast spreads. And I always have the CT scan kind of up on the computer next to us where we're working. So if we see something, you know, unusual in terms of the contrast spread, we try to correlate that with the CT scan. And I've, I've seen a lot of interesting patterns because of that. So, you know, one that comes to mind is I had a patient who, We thought we were in the right place, but the contrast spread, you know, just kept going posteriorly, which is obviously something we don't want because posterior to the vertebral body is where the spinal cord and all the nerve roots are coming out. So we certainly don't want our alcohol spreading in that direction. Took a look at the CT scan to kind of understand why in the world, you know, if it looks like our needle tip is at the front of the vertebral body is all of this contrast spread going posteriorly. And sure enough, she had a giant osteophyte that was almost acting as like a shield to the neck nerve. So everything was getting pushed back instead of forward. So, you know, I think that's one of the pearls is kind of always, always have a CT scan. And I, I look at that before the procedure too, and kind of pre-plan my needle trajectories but then i also have that up in the procedure room and accessible so if there is something you know unusual in terms of the contrast spread i you know always encourage my fellows and then also myself take a look at it to try to understand you know why is this happening why are we seeing this i think the other big thing is you know a lot of people think of these neurolytic procedures particularly the celiac plexus and the superior hypogastric plexus blocks as bilateral blocks. And what I found in my practice over time is that, you know, we, well, initially I would spend a lot of time trying to kind of perfect two needles so that the spread on both sides was perfect. And then what I realized over time is that I'm just actually causing a lot of discomfort to the patient. And if I have one good needle with, you know, great contrast spread on one side, I can actually just inject a higher volume on that side. And because it's right in front of the vertebral body, it does spread pretty nicely. So I don't torture the patients anymore, trying to get two perfect needles. And sometimes, you know, if after two or three attempts, I can't get both sides perfectly, but I have one really good side, you know, then I encourage the fellows to accept the side that we have that we're happy with and inject through that side, through that needle. And that's something I've kind of developed over time. The other thing, I guess that's a pearl, is every once in a while, so most of my cancer patients, unfortunately, have lost a fair amount of weight by the time they see me, but some of them haven't. And I remember I had a patient who was kind of of an athletic build, very strong, and every single place that I put the needle I kept getting what looked like intramuscular spread because I saw muscle striations. And, you know, no matter no matter how many different ways I tried to position this, you know, I couldn't find any area where I wasn't getting intramuscular spread. And unfortunately for him, you know, ended up aborting the procedure. And I think that was a good teaching point for the fellows too, that, you know, sometimes you can't, you just can't do the procedure. You can't get spread kind of, like you would want to. And that's something you have to be okay with, because we wouldn't want to inject 100% alcohol into the muscle, causing potentially muscle damage and further pain rather than pain relief. So, you know, if you don't see what you want to see, and your spread isn't what you want it to be, be okay with walking away. And that doesn't mean the patient doesn't have any options. It just means that fluoroscopically guided neurolytic injections is probably not going to be an option, at least not today.
1: Yeah. So kind of knowing, those are great pearls, by the way. So knowing kind of nice. the last one is when to kind of say, hey, walk uh, away." Let's pause. <laughs> yeah. Walk away. And like you're saying, we're going to cause more damage. And I imagine that comes with experience as well.
0: Yeah. And I think, you know, everyone should be comfortable with that. I think a lot of the times when you're fresh out of fellowship, you're just determined to make it work at all costs because you almost take it personally of why can't I do this? But, you know, as, as you kind of gain some experience and, you know, see more cases, you kind of realize sometimes it's just not my fault. And there's nothing, you know, there's nothing I could have done differently here. I looked at the CT scan. I looked at everything. I planned my needle trajectories, and I just can't get this, you know, needle to be what I want it to be. And you just got to walk away versus like risking harm to the patient. And I think that applies to any of our pain procedures, because there's always going to be procedures that you're just not happy with, you know, your needle placement or whatever, the contrast spread, etc. And I think it's, you know, an important lesson for all fellows out there to just know when to walk away.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, very wise words. Sandy, tell us a little bit more about other challenges and kind of how to overcome them. I don't know if it's the office visits. I don't know it's about getting the certain, you know, multidisciplinary team members to buy into what you may be able to offer? Anything that you'd recommend a fellow kind of recognize and then how he or she could work through those?
0: Yeah. So one of the things I realized kind of early on as I was interested in cancer pain is that it requires a lot of coordination. And so you really need a team. This isn't the kind of medicine that you can just do on your own. What I mean by that is, you know, patients have concerns, valid concerns. They're scared. You know, these are kind of big deal procedures, I would say, you know, injecting alcohol places or putting in an intrathecal pump, which is, you know, a small surgery that's going to be, you know, let alone infusing medications along their spinal cord. You know, all these things I think are very concerning for patients And what I found after about a year of practicing and just kind of managing all the phone calls and all the kind of additional time that wasn't clinic and procedure time is that I really needed a cancer care coordinator. And so luckily OHSU was very supportive of that. And after about a year of developing the program and kind of building up, you know, cancer care at OHSU, we did hire a nurse coordinator and she has just made everything better. So in terms of coordinating anticoagulation with the oncological team, coordinating, you know, when we would do the procedure relative to when's the last chemo, because, you know, that chemo is associated in a drop in platelet counts, you know, coordinating with several different disciplines. So if the patient is interested in doing potentially acupuncture before their procedure or acupuncture before their chemo, you know, coordinating that all those people are important, a lot of that coordination just takes so much time. And then in addition to that, you know, she's able to take that time to talk to patients and kind of, you know, acknowledge their concerns and their worries regarding the procedure That we're talking about. Some of these patients just don't know who to call. And, you know, it's just, it's made a world of difference for our clinic to have a cancer care coordinator. And I think she, you know, is bettering care for these patients and also just making the procedure aspect of things more streamlined. And patients come prepared, they know what to expect, they're less scared, and things just go better and more smoothly. So that's one thing that I would encourage anyone that's interested in cancer care to kind of consider, you know, having a nurse coordinator or some kind of coordinator available because these patients do require more. And sometimes it's more than a physician can give, particularly if you have a busy practice otherwise.
1: Nice. That's great. And then for some people listening out there, Sandy, who who might not have the resources for a patient care coordinator. You might not have the multidisciplinary team. What argument could they make to their healthcare system to say, hey, this is a worthwhile endeavor?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the biggest thing that we always look at as physicians is safety. And so if you're a physician and you're, you know, spread too thin because you're, you are kind of the sole healthcare provider that's kind of taking a look at everything, I think it would either require you scaling back your practice. And so seeing fewer patients, which is, you know, not a good long-term outcome in order to be able to kind of do a lot of this coordination, or it's recognizing that this isn't just, you know, a lot of hand-holding, that there's actually some value in terms of, you know, coordinating with all the other providers. And there usually are several other providers that, you know, see our cancer patients and are involved in their care to make sure that, you know, we understand, all the ins and outs of, you know, how to do these procedures safely. Like there's certain, I'll give you another example. I mean, there's a, there's certain chemotherapy agents that really don't want to do steroid injections in those patients. And I certainly don't have all those chemotherapy agents memorized. And I feel like every once in a while, there's a new chemotherapy out on the market. I've never even heard of that one. Mm-hmm. Nor do I know if it's, you know, compatible with you know, some of the injectates, particularly the steroid that we use in our procedures. So that's another thing, you know. She does that safety check with the oncologist of is it okay for us to do, you know, blank procedure in this patient? And sometimes the answer is no, and that's okay. But that's something that, you know, she is trained to do, she has the time to do, and thus improves outcome and and I think safety of kind of doing our interventional procedures in a way that has good outcomes rather than potentially bad
1: outcomes. Nice. I like that. I love the love the coordination and the intense amount of thought and planning before and preparation. That's wonderful. Switching gears, Sandy, tell us a little bit, obviously we you've been very gracious with your time. People in the PSPS want to know a little bit more about the recent passing of Dr. Lisa Stearns. Could you tell us a little bit more about
0: her? Yeah, so I was so sad to hear about the passing of Lisa Stearns. I met Lisa a couple years ago at a Women in Neuromodulation event that was held in San Francisco, and she just had so much energy and so much passion for her patients and for her work. She was one of the speakers, and she was talking about spinal cord stimulation in the setting of cancer pain. But as most people know, she also did you know, a whole host of procedures, including probably the most intrathecal pump implants of anyone in the country. And just, you know, I would say was world renowned for the work that she did. I think as a woman, she was definitely an inspiration to me, as you know, someone who was an interventionalist, was doing surgeries, was doing implants. And unfortunately we don't see that, you know, too often on a day-to-day basis. I'm lucky that I work in a practice that's half women and half men, but I'm the only female who's doing the implants. And so I think it's great to see models of women who are doing, you know, these interventional procedures, who are taking on challenging cases. And that really, I mean, that was Lisa. Like, I, I'm part of this DRG- Email group, and it's basically physicians that you know ask questions about certain clinical topics or challenging cases. And I just remember like a couple years ago, someone asked a question about an intrathecal pump, and Lisa Stearns had responded that you know she was placing the catheter, you know, all the way up towards the foramen magnum. I was like, wow, that is really cool to be able to understand. You know, the anatomy and the physiology and the pharmacokinetics and everything of, you know, intrathecal drug therapy so well that you would be able to successfully, you know, implant a pump and then, you know, run the infusion all the way up in the frame and magnum for kind of head and neck pain. I, I just, I thought she was a remarkable woman. And, you know, I wish I would have been able to learn from her more and spend more time with her. Unfortunately, I did not have those opportunities. But, you know, I think her legacy will live on. And I think, you know, forever, she'll serve as kind of a role model for women that, you know, women can be implanters, women can take on challenging cases. And, you know, particularly in cancer pain, which I think is very cerebral. I think women are a very good fit for that, because we also have I don't know, I guess kind of a maternal instinct of wanting to care for these patients towards the end of their life. Not to say that men don't, but there's just a lot fewer women, I would say, in interventional pain than I would like to see. And I hope that changes. And I think Lisa was a big pioneer in that. And she will always be remembered fondly.
1: Yeah, huge loss. You mentioned the DRG email group, the Women in Neuromodulation, to carry on her legacy. Are there any other organizations, links, sites that you'd recommend a listener to check out then?
0: Yeah. So one of my friends of Shravni, gosh, I'm going to screw up her last name, Dubrovka. She's at Johns Hopkins and is the fellowship director of that program. And she's come up with a fantastic course called Pain Rounds which actually this is a perfect time to be talking about it because the new fellows are starting or just about to start and it really does an excellent job of going through the basics of spinal cord stimulation and it also touches on intrathecal pump therapy too. So, you know, I would encourage everyone to sign up for the program and it's just painrounds.org. I did require it for our fellows this year. And the feedback I got from our fellows with this, that they felt it was a fantastic course and really gave them a good foundation in terms of being able to implant stimulators and then understand kind of the ins and outs of managing infection, you know, different styles of approaching surgery. What else? Yeah, I mean, it's a very thorough course and she interviews kind of top people in neuromodulation. So The information I think that fellows can get from it is huge. And the nice thing is it's online, so you can do it in your free time and really kind of delve into those
1: topics. Nice. Sounds very comprehensive. Any last words of wisdom, encouragement, thoughts about where Cancer Pain Field is going? Anything you'd like to share with the listeners?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I think a lot of people are scared of cancer pain. I think some of it comes from inexperience because... I think a lot of training programs don't necessarily prepare you for cancer pain. But I I hope that, you know, as we recognize the valuable role we can play in society and, you know, act as, you know, physicians that are particularly helpful at end of life in terms of minimizing the need for opioids, I hope more programs incorporate more cancer training into their curriculum and hire, you know, attending physicians who are able to train their trainees in these techniques so that they can graduate feeling confident and feel good about their skills. So I hope that, you know, the more people realize the benefit of what we're doing, I think, you know, I think it would be great to see the field expand right now. You know, I think it's a small niche within interventional pain but i do think i do think it can be much bigger and we can help a lot more patients with a lot of their options than just opioids in the future
1: thank you and, and you spending time with us definitely gets the word out there lets people know creates a bigger niche as well so thank you dr sandy christensen at ohsu we appreciate your time psps is very fortunate to have you share your thoughts and wisdom and pearls with all of us
0: happy to thanks for having me take care Thank you for listening. We want to continue this engagement. Please visit the PSPS website, join the email newsletter, watch the webinars, or attend the conference.